Welcome back to SSR and welcome back to New Reads November. For week two of New Reads November, we turn our attention to Their Vicious Games by Joelle Wellington. If this author's name sounds familiar, it might be because I was lucky enough to have Joelle as a guest on the podcast this past summer. I got to be part of Joelle's interview circuit when Their Vicious Games, her debut novel, was published in July. And now I got to read the book and share my thoughts about it with all of you for this New Reads November episode. So fun. We will get into the nitty gritty details of their vicious games in the interview that follows, so I won't bore you with too many details. What I will say is that you are about to hear a lot of fangirling. This is a big book that is trying to do a lot and pulling it off. My guests and I chat about our favorite moments of the novel's intense plot, as well as the big picture issues that Joelle manages to work seamlessly into her writing. Their vicious games felt to us like a real return to peak YA, but also takes a fresh, important look at matters of race, class, and privilege. We discuss the author's masterful planning, the compelling main character, performative allyship, white saviorism, and their vicious games as a work of satire. I can practically guarantee that after listening to this episode, you are going to want to read the book ASAP. And therein lies the beauty of New Reads November. This week, I have the pleasure of reintroducing you to Erin LaRosa, who last appeared on the show last summer on episode 197. Erin lives in Los Angeles and writes funny books about people falling in love. Her new novel, Plot Twist, is out today and is an indie next pick. Erin has four daughters, two human and two feline, and you will actually hear from one of those feline daughters later in this episode. Find Erin on social at Erin LaRosa Lit. Let's take a moment to talk about where you can find SSR online. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. I feel like I don't take enough opportunities to plug the podcast website, where you can find so many goodies book recommendations from our guests, links to interesting resources about the books we talk about on the show, our SSR merch shop, and so much more. Check it out at www.ssrpodcast.com. The SSR website is also an easy way to find our Patreon. When you tap support at the top of the page at www.ssrpodcast.com, you will be whisked away to that extra special little corner of the SSR community where, for as little as $1 per month, you can help keep the pod going strong in exchange for exclusive perks. You can also get there at the link in SSR's Instagram bio or by going to www.patreon.com SSRpodcast. Depending on the tier you choose, you will get things like an invite to the SSR Discord channel, access to weekly bonus Q&As with guests like Erin, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, reading recap videos, and an invitation to the SWR, that's Shit We Read, book club. This month in SWR, we are reading Mame by Jessica George, and it has already been lots of fun. We would love to have you along. Plus, the Patreon perks will keep rolling, even as I take a brief maternity leave from the podcast itself starting in January. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRpodcast when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a great place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. 
You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Erin. Welcome back to SSR. Thank you so much, Allie. I have you here this time under very different circumstances. Last time you were on the show... <laughs> We talked about this very sweet, quiet book called Mandy, written by like the queen of all sweet ladylike queens, Julie Andrews. We fangirled over how much we love Julie Andrews as both an author and the queen of musicals. This time when you <laughs> reached out and you were like, oh, I have a new book coming out. I'd love to come back on. I was so excited. And I suggested you come on for New Reads November, which I was like, great, this will be a little bit different. Not only are you coming on for a new book this time around instead of a throwback, but the book itself like could not be any more different than Mandy. We're talking about Their Vicious Games by Joelle Wellington, which came out earlier this year. And whoa. Yeah, this book, I, I like, I'm so excited to talk to you about it because I loved it. And I think I you gave me a list of options to pick. And I picked this one because the cover was so stunning it's like this lettering that kind of looks like someone drew the title in lipstick or blood mm -hmm. and then her hand is holding a perfume bottle which we learn about very quickly and a string of pearls which we also learn about and I mean it's a stunning cover and I I kind of went in blind and I'm glad I did because I, I was like whoa this is like I think it was pitched as the bachelor meets squid games which yes. makes a lot of sense and I also was like this feels like the hunger games in so many ways and like what else did I say I can't remember the other comp I was thinking of but it's just so good it's so original oh gossip girl just because of the wealth and the new englandness of it absolutely so I think I may have told you this I can't remember but I will let listeners know and remind listeners who already know this but we actually had Joelle on the podcast a few months ago and this happens occasionally with New Reads November where like I get the rare opportunity to talk about a book written by somebody who's actually been on the show it's always fun so I will recommend that listeners go ahead and listen to Joelle's appearance on SSR I had so much fun talking to her and it was great to discover that her book was as incredible as everybody told me that it would be. This book is big in a lot of ways. It's like a big, chunky hardcover. I took it with me on the trip we took last week. And it was like the one hardcover I brought with me. And it was like hefty. Like I made my husband carry it in his backpack. <laughs> but it's also big in terms of like what it's doing. Like it is this rich world that the author has built. And it's exploring big ideas so we're not going to be able to cover all of it. There's so much to say, and I can't wait to hear where you want to start, Erin. The thing that I would suggest as like my big picture thought about the book is that it really took me back to this like heyday of YA. And you mentioned The Hunger Games, which was a comp that came up in a few of the other reviews I read. And it felt so much like that to me. It felt like the early 2010s when we were getting all of these big blockbuster kind of YA books 
dystopian or like dystopian adjacent with big ideas and like just really interesting plots. Like it really took me back to that place. Mm -hmm. And that was just exciting to experience again. I'm glad you brought that up. And I think you used the word blockbuster. And that's when I was reading this, I was like, oh, this is gonna, this has to be a movie. Like, there's no way this won't be a movie because they, yeah, it's happening already. Great. I mean, it's so wonderful. I I can't wait just because I think also the, the lead Adina feels so strong and so compelling and you're rooting for her the entire time. And I like where to start was for me, she starts the book off and ends up ending the book too in suburbia. And so I live in suburbia. I'm in like Burbank in California. It is the suburbs of LA. And I remember when I started reading, I said to my husband, I was like, she really hates suburbia. I wonder, I wonder what's going on. I was like, I feel so bad that we live here. And it comes around in the end. But she surprised me as a character because when you start the novel off, she's in such a bad place. Like she has just graduated from high school. She has lost her acceptance to Yale and is trying to recover the life that she thought she would have. And so she's in this incredibly dark place. And by the end of the book, she's such a strong person and you see the capabilities that she's had within her and I just found her so compelling as a as a heroine. I thought she was a fantastic heroine too and a flawed heroine which is so important. It's interesting you brought up the suburbia thing because if there was one element of the book that I loved slightly less than the rest it was like the harping on suburbia and maybe it was a little (laughs) bit of like I don't know, projecting because I grew up in suburbia and I did everything I could to leave suburbia. Right. And while I now like technically live in Philadelphia, like I'm on the border of Philadelphia and (laughs) suburbia. But I think it also just felt like we kept coming back to that and it slowed me down a little bit in the book. So at the risk of like nitpicking because there's so much working in the book and like my take on that motif, I think is what you might call it because it does reappear again and again throughout the novel is sort of, I don't know, it's irrelevant compared to all the things that I loved. But it is so interesting that that was something that struck you as like something that brought you into it, where I was like, okay, I just kind of want to like keep going past the suburbia stuff. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I actually, at a certain point, I was like, I wish she would stop harping on suburbia. But then at the end, it comes full circle for her because she really acknowledges like, actually, it wasn't suburbia that <laughs> I was mad about it. And I, I like didn't appreciate what was here and so I think she like redeems all of the harping she does on it and I I would be curious if she kind of intentionally kept reminding you that she didn't like suburbia or or whatever it was but yeah I remember being like where is this book going and then it went into this incredibly rich world of this American family who's supremely wealthy called the Remingtons and she goes great to school. Name. I mean, a great name. And also the two boys, Graham and Pierce. That's like very rich boy names. Really great. Yeah. And she's in the same grade as Pierce. And so he's Remington the four. He's number four. They call him or four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the fourth. It was fascinating and horrifying to be thrown into the lavishness of the Remington estate and The whole setup is that in order for her to get her place back in Yale after she's had a fight 
with this wealthy girl from her school and it's been rescinded is that she wants to get invited to this thing that the Remingtons hold called the finish, which is supposed to like groom these women into senators, into congressmen, like people who have these high places in society. And she can point to different women who have gone through the finish and are now wildly successful. And so she thinks like, okay, my only way out of suburbia haha, is to <laughs> go through the finish and I'll win it. And it'll be like kind of like a debutante ball kind of situation where I'll be trained and I'll, I'll like take classes in how to do ballroom dancing or whatever it is, like table manners. And it is anything but that. It certainly is anything but that. And I, I did pull out a part of the invitation that she does receive to the finish just to like contextualize it for listeners. It's a very long invitation that eventually comes in the mail. But I think the key part is... In pursuit of the furthering of women's education and placement in society, the Remington family established The Finish, a two-week program led by the esteemed Remington matriarchs, in which we annually select 12 girls of already outstanding rank with the intent of cultivating the poise, skill, and survival instincts needed to succeed at new heights. These skills are then put to the test in three distinct competitive events, evaluating for initiative, strategy, and finally, medal. So they're like, Framing it as this kind of girl power thing later on, Aunt Layton, who is like, I kept thinking about Aunt Lydia from Handmaid's Tale. She is the Remington representative. She's Pierce and Graham's aunt, and she's like the games master of the finish. And she says something kind of similar once all the girls arrive at the finish. She says, Matilda, who is like one of the ancestors of the Remington family, Matilda fashioned the finish to uplift and mold young women in the same way Edgewater, which is the school, did young men, a representation of the Remingtons' generosity and commitment to the development of the future. Even after Edgewater was made co-ed in the last mid-century, we continued this tradition of the finish, championing women in industries that are traditionally male-dominated and committing ourselves to our mission of propelling them upward. (laughs) So they're really like doubling down on this idea that like, look at all that we are doing for women. We understand that Edgewater was once this place that was only fit for men and we wanted to like even the playing field that's a a phrase that we hear again and again throughout the book and so that's like what Adina thinks she's getting herself into so she sort of like tricks her way into the finish which I loved because she's using every tool available to her and she's using her like femininity and her beauty she sneaks off at an end of school like barbecue party kind of thing and she kisses Pierce even though he has a girlfriend Penthesilea. Yeah, can you, wait, can you pronounce that for me again? How do we say this name? Penthesilea. And the only reason I know how to say that is because I listened to the audiobook. <sighs> so it was repeated over and over. So Penthesilea. 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 I feel like I have to say it a couple <laughs> of times. I could not figure it out. They shorten it to pen in right. the book very smartly. But yeah, Penthesilea. Penthesilea. If anybody knows anything about that name, please let us know because I have never heard it before. <laughs> I hadn't either. And we're led to believe that she's like very American, like very waspy. This is not like a name that comes from another heritage. So if anybody knows a Penneth. I can't say it, Erin. Penthesilea. <laughs> Penthesilea. If anybody knows a Penthesilea, please let us know. But I will likely be calling her Pen for the duration of this podcast because... As will I. Penthesilea is just a big name. Can you imagine mm-hmm. being like a toddler named Penthesilea? Should I add that to my baby <laughs> names list? 
Well, it's funny you say that because I have a three-year-old and then I also have a four-month-old. And so before the four-month-old was born, I kind of like tested names out with my three-year-old. I was like, can you say the name Celeste? And she'd be like, Cell. And I'd be like, okay, we're skipping that one. And so I <laughs> I kind of tested it with her. For sure, Penthesilea would not make the cut. Yeah, we've been doing like the playground test, like does it feel mm-hmm. can you yell like, it right can you yell it or like how does it yeah. feel? be like oh this is my child blank yeah this is my daughter Penthesilea I don't think that's really my vibe now you're getting all these name options <laughs> I know Penthesilea Casa that's a mouthful there's some good names there's Saint her roommate Saint at the Remington finish I kind of liked Hawthorne too I know that was her last name but Hawthorne was a great name oh Hawthorne's a good one yeah mm-hmm. Joelle if you're listening great names Great book. I mean, Joelle, I hope you're listening because we're really just praising you. Yeah. So Pierce is dating Penn at the beginning and really for most of the book. But Adina realizes that if she can like convince Pierce to give her a shot at the finish, like this might be her way back into Yale. And we have to establish like some of the racial dynamics here, too, because that's a huge component. Yeah. And I read an interview with Joelle. I'll link it in the show notes. But she was talking about her inspiration for the book. Worth noting, and I think you'll really appreciate this, Erin, as an author yourself, that she did not start writing this until 2020, (laughs) and it came out in 2023, and now that I'm in the thick of the publishing process myself and realizing how long everything takes, it takes even longer than you think it's going to take, which is already long. That's right. So she didn't come up with the idea until like the summer of 2020, and it came out in the summer of 2023, she must have been like cranking. Like that's amazing. Yeah, well, because this book is so, like you said, it's big. big. Yeah. It's big. And apparently she's a very dedicated outliner and she does not deviate from her outlines. You know, that makes sense because the way this was written, I so envy her because it's so precisely written and so strong. Like you don't really feel like there are parts that weren't intentionally in there. And I felt like the ending in particular had so many nice twists and turns that I was like, there's no way she didn't outline this because it's the way that she accomplished that is really masterful. And it it really came together nicely. Masterful is a great way to put it. So I would imagine she put in a lot of like time on the outline and then just charged through the drafting. Yeah. But she said she was highly inspired by the racial reckoning of the summer of 2020, which makes a lot of sense. And also during that time, she was in peak pandemic mode and watching all of her favorite old seasons of The Bachelor. Oh, my God. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of The Bachelor now that Gary is on the scene for any Bachelor fans out there. I have to catch up. I haven't started yet, but everybody says Golden Bachelor is the best. It is so compelling because you really feel like a lot is on the line for these people. Similarly, how it is in this book, (laughs) everything is on the line for Adina. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting sort of combination of inspiration that drove her to start this book. But Adina talks very openly from the very beginning of the book about how everybody at Edgewater looks at her as the daughter of the help. Her parents both work at the school She is only able to attend Edgewater because of a scholarship that actually was endowed by the Remingtons. So in some ways, she already feels like they have like created her. And she's very aware of the fact that like, it's already been so hard for her. She's already had to work twice as hard as everybody else to get where she is. Like she was the valedictorian. She got early acceptance to Yale, all of these things. And it was taken away because of 
a really like a class-driven conflict that she had with Esme, who's a mean girl at the school. And she knows she's going to have to work even harder now to bounce back. So when she kisses Pierce and ends up getting this invitation to the finish, it's like a big win. And I think she she seems like very accustomed to moving in these white spaces. In another interview I found with Joelle, she talks about how she grew up going to primarily white institutions. And so she wanted to explore like the casual racism, the, the casual classism that she had faced throughout her whole educational experience which I think comes through really well in the book. So when Adina gets this invitation, not only is she like raring to go, but she's also stealing herself, kind of knowing that she's probably going to be the only black girl who's part of the finish. And she's like, okay, fine. Like I can figure this out. And that's basically what happens. Saint is the only other person of color who has been summoned to the finish. And there's a lot at play in terms of like finances, class, race, and all of those big divisions that intersect in complicated ways yeah now that you say it I I think it makes total sense that Joelle has experience in those white spaces because I also got get out vibes from this book where I was like oh this is talking about so many big issues just beyond the the fun of the book which is you know reading these girls journey but there are they she really delves into like you said race and classism and the casualness from these white people's mouths where it will just drop. Yeah, this book is just incredible. (laughs) And it kind of shoots off like a rocket, like as soon as they get to the Remington estate and the games begin, there's, you know, a death right away. Yeah, the first night Margaret dies, I think, at the like first cocktail party. Yes. And up until that point, Adina still kind of thinks that she's just going to this like condensed finishing school program She's under the impression that it's going to really be about her like academic prowess. Like she's like, this will be fine. It's just going to be an intense two weeks, but I can prove myself. I know that I'm the smartest of all of these girls that will have been asked. And when Margaret dies so suddenly, she's like, hmm, (laughs) maybe that's not really what's going on. And the other girls are much more clued in to the true motives behind the finish because they are part of this same like upper crust society. They've all grown up with the Remingtons. And so they know like what's really at stake. Do you want to fill our listeners in on like what is really going on? Yeah. So this, this part unfolds really beautifully in the book because like you said, Adina is under one impression, all of the girls other than Adina know going in that this is a winner takes all kind of competition in that it's expected that girls will die. And the whole point of it is, are you willing to kill to be part of the Remington family? So instead of going through the finish and getting into Yale, the the prize at the end that Adina finds out is that you'll get to marry Pierce Remington. What a prize. (laughs) I know, right? in order to marry him and he does sound really hot the way she described him so maybe it's worth it I don't know who's to say (laughs) who's to say I I didn't see him but in order to win you have to be willing to kill or be killed and so all of these girls go in with the knowledge that they might die which I had a really hard time wrapping my head around because I was like whoa and I think Adina does too Adina's like really y'all are willing to die but to her point, and she makes this clear in the book, the Remingtons are the most powerful family in America. Anything can happen if you're part of them. And if you're on their bad side, 
anything can happen as well, but in a bad way. So for Adina, what she discovers is there's really no way out of this competition once you're in it. You know, there's obviously a lot of guards. She may not be the only girl who wants to leave once, you know, she figures out and the other girls see oh, people are dying, but there's really no way out. You just have to power through. And she does try to get out the first night. As soon as she finds out that things are not what she thought they might be, she tries to escape. And she is informed very quickly that if she leaves, the Remingtons are willing to do whatever they need to do to punish her family. Her parents work for the school, so they could very easily get her parents fired or worse. And Adina is... She feels a great deal of responsibility for her parents and for their reputation. She is already in her mind, like completely embarrassed them by having her Yale offer rescinded. They've given so much for her to have this education and she's like their pride and joy. And so she's like, the worst thing I could do is not only not win, but have their livelihood threatened. Like it would be the exact opposite of why she set out to go to the finish in the first place. So she, like you said, basically like, wraps her head around the fact that there's no escape. She is going to have to figure out how to get through the finish. And that means that she'll probably either win or die. And she, at moments throughout the book, like kind of thinks maybe she can work the system and like maybe she'll be the first one not to have to kill anybody or like not to have to be in this super fierce competition. But as you might imagine, listeners, it's really hard (laughs) to work around this like decades old tradition we really want to be mindful like not to give too much away because there are so many twists and turns so I feel like maybe our best way to talk about their vicious games without spoiling too much is to talk about some of the characters and like fun yeah what they represent so I think I want to start with Aunt Layton who as I mentioned before is like the games master and she identifies Adina early on as somebody that like she sees herself in, which is so creepy because we can't really tell if we can trust her or not. Right. And Aunt Layton is someone who, like Adina, did not come from wealth. Her parents were employed by the Remingtons. I think maybe her parents were in charge of the stable or something like that. Yeah, something like that. And so she participated in the same exact Finnish games where her prize was to marry into the family. And she won that prize, Uh, right? Yeah, she did. That's the other thing that was interesting is that there's a finish every year, but because there isn't always like an eligible Remington son who's like ripe for being married at the age (laughs) of 18, some of the finishes are not as intense. So it's really only the years where a Remington man is graduating from Edgewater that things get this aggressive. Yeah, poor Adina. She really picked the wrong year. I mean, any other year things might have been okay. It's sort of this like foregone conclusion that because Pierce is, I guess, marriageable now, again, at the age of 18, that anything can happen and that it's really open season. So Aunt Layton, I believe, participated in like, I don't know if it was the last finish where somebody was of marriageable age or the one before. It was for Pierce's uncle. That's all I know. It was like third's younger brother. Third is Pierce's dad. Yeah, it's it's sort of confusing the lineage because there's also in the mix Graham, Pierce's older brother, who was like skipped over. Like he he sort of has passed on all of his privilege to Pierce. He's like the bad boy of the family a little bit, but you can't quite figure out if that's real or if that's 
an image that he's trying to present because he wants his brother to have the spotlight, but he didn't have a finish. He didn't want to have one or they didn't want to give him one. But yes, Aunt Layton did win a finish that was very much like the one that Adina has to participate in. Yeah. And she is someone who, you know, Adina feels will help her initially. And then things take a turn. I think Joelle did a great job at establishing the fact that we weren't entirely sure if she could be trusted. Like, I wasn't mad that I didn't really believe that Aunt Layton was a genuine ally. Like, I kind of enjoyed the fact that I couldn't trust her, which I think is a hard balance because sometimes when you're reading a character who is meant to be an ally to the protagonist and is clearly lying, you're like, oh, this isn't fun. Like, I already know that they're full of shit. But in this case, the fact that Adina like also clearly wasn't sure, it made it more fun to like engage with the unknown part of Aunt Layton. I think also like naming a character Aunt Layton, maybe it's that Aunt Lydia vibe that you were getting. There's something sinister about it where you're being forced to call someone your aunt when you don't know them and just met them and what's going on there. Yeah. Also, the Gossip Girl connection that you mentioned earlier, the Leighton that I think of is Leighton Meester. So it was Leighton Meester. That immediately drew that parallel. So Aunt Leighton, like throughout the book, is the one pulling a lot of the strings. She's the one who is telling the girls what's going on with these different events that are part of the finish. She is laying down the rules. She, as far as we can tell initially, is like the one setting everything up, although it becomes clear later on that the Remington men have a little bit more to say than she might initially suggest. But at first, it feels like Adina might have a little bit of an advantage. Initially, she's like, I think these other girls are better than I am. But Anne Layton is the first one to sort of give her hope that she might not be bound to lose. And then... Pierce really steps in and we find out that she does not seem to be set up to lose and I cannot wait to unpack Pierce with you because (laughs) Pierce is at once like so charming and dopey and so slimy yeah I think you're right and I you know she kind of sets that up right away because like you mentioned there's this like bonfire party he and Adina have a kiss, and it seems like he kisses her back, even though he's dating someone, and Thessalia. Whose name we can't say. And, <laughs> yeah. And so you don't get that smarmy vibe right away, but also you're kind of like, hmm, this guy. And then, you know, as Adina describes him, she is attracted to him. They have witty banter. He's good on paper, obviously. He's very wealthy. Going to Harvard. And, you know, he presents himself as this person who is, as he explains it, trying to change the finish. He's trying to even the playing field, is what he initially says, by inviting someone like Adina, who is not from his world necessarily, wealth-wise, class-wise, or, you know, race-wise. And so, you know, he wants you to think he's a good guy, and as the story progresses, our girl Penn is like, this guy is not good. He's my boyfriend. He's not good. Don't trust him. Our relationship is very toxic. (laughs) Yes, extremely toxic. So yeah, he, for me, like, I didn't really see all of his twists and turns coming, which I think is great. Like, I didn't really know where his character was going necessarily. And I definitely didn't want Adina to end up with him or anyone in that family. But 
it was interesting that all of these girls wanted to be with him or, you know, really his family, but he was viewed as this extremely charming, extremely enigmatic, beautiful guy, basically. Yes, and he really functions as this avatar for a very common type of person that I think really emerged from that summer of 2020, which really just further illuminates for me, like those interviews that I mentioned before where Joelle was talking about how that summer was where the book started because Pierce just, I mean, he does seem to be pretty well-intentioned, at least for most of the book. And I remember in 2020 in particular, this conversation about intention versus impact. And I think that Pierce is like the poster child for the intention versus impact conversation. Like he thinks in his heart of hearts, that if he has good intentions, intentions that will bring more people that look like Adina into the family, intentions that suggest that he's not trying to just perpetuate this cycle of whiteness at the top, intentions that show that he's like open-minded and not so set in his waspy ways, that he is like solving the problem. Like I fixed racism. (laughs) I solved the gap. I do think he does say things along those lines. He's, you know, when confronted with alternative views where he's like, yeah, what are you talking about? I'm doing a really good thing here. Don't you think I'm doing a really good thing? Yeah. And he also, I think like there's the performative quality too. And I think like Speaking as a white person who lived through 2020 and lived through 2020 with a growing social media platform, trying to navigate like how to learn and listen and how to talk about some of these things in a public way, I empathize with Pierce at moments because I I know that I messed up and continue to mess up in these conversations about race. And there were times that I was performative in 2020. And there were times that I definitely went into a conversation or shared something with the best of intentions only to realize that like what I was doing was taking away from a real opportunity that somebody of color should have had over me or that I was not paying attention to like the real core of that conversation. And so I think that there is something that just like resonates for anybody who was an adult in that summer. It's interesting. This was a book written for YA for the YA audience, because as somebody who was like in their late 20s during that time, I'm like, no, I remember what it felt like to be an adult and to just realize how much I didn't know. Yeah. And Pierce is a kid and there's clearly a lot that he doesn't know. And he's surrounded by people who yes him. You know, everybody's like, yes, absolutely. Whatever you say, this is your finish. You can do it however you want. And his intention is to even the playing field and to like fix the finish, as you said, Aaron. But he also, I think, has this thing inside of him that's like, and wouldn't it be so badass if, like, I married the black girl who won the finish? And it's it's so yeah. slimy that that's his mindset. Like, he says that Adina is his pick, and Adina is awesome. And so, like, Adina should be his pick, but he doesn't know Adina. Yeah, I think there are various points in the book where that kind of thinking that you're talking about is acknowledged where Aunt Layton will mention that while Pierce should be picking Penn, he's going for Adina. And his dad will never 
like Adina because his dad is a bigot. And all of these various things where it's like hinted at or directly said where it's sort of like he's going for Adina because he thinks that that's like the different, like the non conformist thing to do. Is that the right word I'm looking for? But like, you know, everyone expects him to go for Penn and he's not going to do that basically. And so, yeah, it's really interesting the way that Joelle approaches this because we're obviously seeing the world through Adina's eyes, but she touches on so many different types of like white savior things in this book in a very interesting way. And Pierce, she does that through Pierce (laughs) very well, because like you said, he will think he's having good intentions. It's clear he's going about it the wrong way. But do we actually, at the end of the book, feel like his intentions were good? Like, probably not. But as you're going through the book, you feel like, oh, okay, he's he's trying, I guess. And, you know, Graham is like kind of a good balance to Pierce because Graham wants to believe that Pierce is doing something good as well. Graham is Pierce's older brother, like you said. For some reason, he doesn't get the, the Remington name of Pierce Remington the fourth, his younger brother does. So he his whole purpose in life is to kind of help Pierce and groom Pierce into being the figurehead for the family, like the next big leader. And so Graham, we're led to believe, is sort of like the more empathetic brother, the brother who doesn't like the games, but also doesn't stop them. And I think Adina does a great job of pointing that out throughout the book of like, you could stop this, but you're not. So like, how good are you of a person? Because I think, you know, Graham, sorry to move on to Graham, but, you know, Graham and... No, I'm glad you did. I, he was he was going to be my next stop anyway. Okay. Because, yeah, Graham is someone who continually is like, I'm doing, I'm doing my best. Like, I'm doing everything I can to help you. And Adina really puts him in his place where she's like, actually, you're not. Like, you could stop this cycle. You could change this and you're not doing it. And so in a way, we see that kind of like balance and different different kinds of again white saviorness in Graham and Pierce. Graham's confusing because early on he seems like such an outsider and like such a willful outsider like yeah he's making this big statement about not participating in a lot of the like pageantry of the Finnish and of his family and at first I thought that it was more about his like righteousness about the whole thing. Like he sees all of the systemic issues with it. He doesn't want to be involved. And over the course of the book, you learn more that it's like that he has chosen to push it away because he wants to make his brother look good. It's not really about his morals or his ethics. Like it's more that he just has made the decision that it's not his role to be the like figurehead of all of it. And so it's, I think that Joel like does an excellent job of like taking readers on a journey because at first it seems like Pierce and Graham kind of fill these pretty like classic stereotypes of like the good boy brother who follows all the rules and like the bad boy brother who bucks all expectations. And that's not quite what's going on because they're both like going with the flow a little bit. Can we talk about how like, 
Graham is supposed to be like the bad son because he only got into Yale or something. Uh, yeah, like what a loser. <laughs> what a like, dummy. It's like like Pierce is the good son because he got into Harvard and poor Graham poor Graham only got into Yale. I loved that. It's very Gilmore Girls. Like Harvard yeah. and Yale are your only options. Yeah. So funny. <laughs> yeah, and it's like I think that that was really interesting because it it sort of it peeled off these different layers of both of the brothers where like at first you think that Pierce is fully complicit, which he is, but then you see that like, he doesn't think he's complicit. He thinks he's changing the rules when in fact, like Adina is like, if you really wanted to change the rules, you just like wouldn't participate in this. Like this is about you. Graham could call it off, but Pierce could really call it off because if he just said he wasn't going to marry the winner, there would be absolutely no reason for them to even have any of this. And then we get some more information about Pierce later on that like further complicates things. And Graham at first feels like he's like such a rebel. And then over time you realize that he's almost like more complicit than Pierce. So I just, I think that she did such a great job of, of adding nuance to both of them. It would have been really simple to make their personalities just like complete foils of each other to make them just seem like polar opposites. And that's how it felt at the beginning but it ends up being so much richer than that. Feel free to cut this if this is too much of a spoiler, but I, I wanted to hear what your thoughts were on it. Like at the end, uh, we see Graham write Adina a letter yeah. and he puts his phone number in it. Mm-hmm. Do you think Adina will ever call him? <laughs> Such a good question. And I'm going to keep it in because I think it's, it's, I mean, there's so much going on in this book. Even if you feel like we've spoiled parts of it, read it because there will be so many surprises. I don't think Adina will call him. Do you? I hope she doesn't. I was like, I was like, it would be really terrible if she, <laughs> she like at all touched this guy or went back to him. Also because he's going, well, I won't, I won't say where he's going. That's too much of a spoiler, but. <laughs> I think Adina is pretty clear that she has been traumatized yeah. by the finish, like in the epilogue of the book. I thought it was almost like hilarious that he left yeah. her his number. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, in case you want to call and hang out, when the rest of the epilogue is, like, basically a rundown of of symptoms of PTSD, Aaron's cat has thoughts on their vicious games, and I wish that we knew. There's always a cameo from my cat. Um, (laughs) Can I see your cat? Absolutely. She's so, um, I'll call her a robust cat. She's a little black cat, and by little I mean large. She's She's um, large. She's a curvy lady. What's her name? Her name is Chip. So we have Fish and Chip. So <laughs> this is Chip. I think Chip was on your last episode too. I think Chip Absolutely. really likes SSR. Yeah. Well, Chip, yeah, Chip does because um, she's been excited all day the same way that I have. So, mm-hmm. you know, I should have gotten her right away when, when we started recording, <laughs> but she was sleeping. So she really enjoyed the book, I think. Yes. <laughs> she found it very compelling. Yeah. I mean, the epilogue is interesting because for the vast majority of it, we're really learning about the fact that Adina is trying to pick up the pieces of her life after going through a traumatic experience in the finish. And then she gets this note from Graham that's like, do you want to hang? Which is so classic. Oh my God. And I feel like she in the in the epilogue even is like, I don't know if I'll call him. Yeah. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. And I was like, please don't. Please don't call him. Please don't. I Yeah, I don't want to get too into the specifics of all of the girls at the finish because there's just so many 
different dynamics and so many different characters to get to know. And I want listeners to like have that experience. I did want to call out a few things. The first is that the situation with the multiple Hannahs was perhaps my favorite case of comic relief in anything that I've read or watched in a long time. Well, you know, that is a Bachelor thing. Exactly. I know that Joelle pulled up from The Bachelor because there's always a there's always a Hannah. There was a Hannah always. G. There was a Hannah G. Colton season. The season that shall not yeah, be Yeah, I really appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah, Hannah G. And I Hannah R. and Hannah G. were, were in the book. And they were, like, fiercely competitive with each other. And they both wanted to be the only Hannah. Yeah. And I thought that was so funny because, yes, not only was Joelle like poking at this convention where on dating reality shows, often there are characters with the same like 90s or early aughts first name and we have to like last initial them. But she actually used the name Hannah, which is like known as a bachelor name. So funny. So funny. The Hannahs are competing to be the chief Hannah. Um, I think Saint is a really interesting character. She sort of becomes Adina's sidekick, their roommates. Yeah. And Saint is also, like, not there because she wants to fall in love with Pierce. She has something to prove as well. She is there really for her parents' business interests, and she wants to make an impression on the Remingtons so that they will do more business with her family's corporation. And I really liked her a lot. Like, I would read a whole book about Saint as well. Yeah, I loved her. I was nervous when we first met her because I was like, you can't trust anyone, girl. Like, yeah, watch out. But then I was like, okay, she's she's a good friend. She's a good friend. I was nervous that she was going to have a bad roommate. Me too. I was waiting for that. And then it was really nice when it didn't turn out that way. Yeah. And then there's the other sort of like mean girl crew. And there's a lot to unpack there. So I will let listeners discover most of that on their own. Something that came up throughout the reviews I read was this idea of their vicious games as satire. And that wasn't initially a word that I had thought of when I was reading the book. Um, But I'm curious how you would respond to that. Like, do you see their vicious games as satire? Well, you know, it's interesting, because also, Joelle, I saw on Goodreads called it satire. She said, this is not to be taken super seriously. It's satire. And, you know, I do think like Get Out is kind of like that too, where in many ways it's a comedy and in many ways it's a horror movie. And so, you know, I thought that this walked the line beautifully that way, where there were a lot of really funny like moments kind of similar to, I don't know if you watch Succession, you know, which is also considered comedy. And when you view it in that lens, you can see the humor more. So if I think if you go into the book, if you haven't read it under the umbrella of like, okay, there is going to be satire in this, you'll see those moments. But when I was reading it, like, especially in the really tense parts, it's hard to see the satire, but it is sprinkled throughout. Like I think the first death that we alluded to involves perfume and it's the difference between whether one of the mean girls wore Dior or Chanel that night. Yes. And, you know, like that is like a really funny detail. And the book is filled with things like that where you're like, wow, this is like, you know, I saw, I found myself chuckling where I was like, that's such a funny specific detail that is, you know, like very true to, you know, satire and, and, and also the world of the wealthy and also some of the games they play, like they have to play a very vicious game of Simon Says. Yeah. Oh, 
That was so creepy. Yeah, it was. And that's, you know, I think where the squid game comps come in, but I can see the parts of this book that are satire, but I also think there's so many parts that are just like compelling and action packed and make you turn the pages like very, very strongly. What do you think? I think if I were to read it again with more context from interviews with Joelle, because we talked very briefly about the book when she came onto the show. And then I, I try to go into reading books for the podcast blind because I want to sort of be a blank slate for all the different things that I'm reading for the show. Um, so I didn't know that people were calling it a satire. I think that if I were to reread it, it would it would almost read like a completely different book because totally some of the characters are like caricatures of themselves and yes. the world that they live in is so over the top. Like it's, it's more over the top even than Gossip Girl. Like right. it is so it's just such a big, absurd world. And so I think this first time I read it, I was really invested in like Adina's experience and in the bigger issues that the author was exploring and in like the action. I think on a second read, I might just sort of sit back and look at the world building and try to laugh about it a little bit because I do think you're right. Like there's some of that happening for sure. I wonder what the movie will bring out more of, you know, like if they will walk the line of like Hunger Games where it's just like very stark or if they will try to infuse it with some humor, which I hope they do. You know, I think that's why so many people liked Knives Out and Succession too, where it's just, you know, you get to see this other world and it's it's over the top and you can kind of poke fun at it. Yeah, even though it doesn't actually take place in a boarding school, it almost has that boarding school feeling that so much of so many of us love in fiction. And I think yeah. especially teenagers love that because you have this group of girls that are they're holed up on this beautiful estate and it feels like a condensed boarding school story. Yeah. And I, I think the movie could just be beautiful, like the production value of it. Totally. So we'll have to Oh stay totally. Tuned. This is like the worst boarding school you could ever go to. But Nightmare. Nightmare boarding school. <laughs> the final question I ask of all of my Reads November guests, and even though you're a veteran of SSR, this will be a new twist for you, is about the way a guest experienced the book that they chose for the Reads November episode. So in this case, their Vicious Games compared to the books that they read when they were growing up. So I'm curious like what you would say their vicious games and your thoughts on it. Tell us about the evolution of books written for this age group. Like how does it compare to the books you read when you were growing up and what does that mean about how the industry is moving? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, when I was growing up, like I remember one of the big series books that I read, especially when I was younger was like Babysitter's Club. Yeah. (laughs) So extremely wholesome. And then I remember when Twilight came out. I wouldn't say that Bella is the strongest of protagonists in terms of this, but she's in fight sequences. And I remember being like, oh, that's interesting. And then Hunger Games came and it blew my mind. It blew so many people's minds. And so, you know, I feel like we are seeing women in so much stronger roles, right? Not that the Babysitter's Club isn't great. I started my own tiny little babysitting business after reading those books because I was like, I can, I too can be a business entrepreneur. Amazing. And those books are needed. But something like this, it just, 
punches you in the gut with how strong it is and how spot on it is in terms of social commentary and I hope we get more books like this like that after reading it I was like god I want to read another one just like this like the same but how do you how do you find it and where do you find it I I hope we get more big books with these strong female heroines that comment on what's going on around us because it just was so powerful and I could see if you're a teenager reading this like it's going to be everything for you because this book is going to haunt me for a long time and I, I will probably reread it. But what do you think? I think one of the cool things about this book is that it manages to pack such a punch of social commentary while also being an incredibly well plotted and compelling story. Yeah, I think it's very hard to do both. And I, I think that we're really lucky in 2023 and I've observed this with the last few years of New Reads November to see that there are so many YA authors that are writing queer characters, that are writing about characters who are advocating for their communities, who are taking on systemic racism. And that's all so, so, so incredibly important. And I think over the last few years, thankfully, so many more young people have hopefully been able to see themselves in the characters portrayed on the pages of the books they read. And at the same time, a lot of those books are just kind of like high school stories, which is great. Like we're seeing these <laughs> kids represented in new ways, but they're still just sort of like functioning in the real world. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think Joelle has taken on an extra challenge by taking on these big issues while also like casually having this massive plot. And yeah, I just think she took on a lot and it all really worked. So that was impressive to me. I will say... It sounds like she just turned in her second YA novel this past Oof. summer, and she's now working on an adult book. So she does have more things coming. Thank God. I can't wait to read more from her. She is so talented. It's wild. She's really young, too, which is cool. Like Great. Yeah. Good. I need more. She has a long <laughs> career ahead of her. And I had so much fun chatting about this with you. I was selfishly really hoping that somebody would pick their vicious games because... I'm your girl. <laughs> yes. I was like, yes, thank you, Erin. I just interviewed Joelle, and I had seen the book everywhere. So um, I'm glad I got to read it. The cover is gorgeous. So good. I hope that she has it framed somewhere. Yeah, I think I'm going to order the hardcover because I had ordered the audiobook, but yeah. it's so gorgeous and I want to reread it. It's really pretty. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you came back for New Reads November. Thank you for having me. Other than their vicious games, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? This is kind of a fun one. I actually have it here, especially, I mean, this will come out in November, but I think it's still spooky season time around then. So this is called The Kiss Curse by Aaron Sterling. Oh, yeah. It's really cute. It's a super fun rom-com. I had read her other book, The X-Hex. So if you're very into witches um, and spooky things, and this has a little black kitty cat, just like my kitty cat on the cover, then I think you will really love that. So I will recommend that book. Perfect. Well, I will include a link to that book in the show notes for this episode. And the day that this episode comes out, November 14th, Erin, you have a new book coming out into yeah. the world as well. Happy book birthday. Tell Thank us you. all about your new release. Yeah, so I have this book coming out called Plot Twist. I love this book so much. And by the time that this airs, it'll be known it was an ALA pick, which is the American Library Association for 
one of their books of the month, which is so exciting. Yay! Congratulations! Thank you. It also got an indie next pick, which is like indie bookstores picking it as also their favorite. So I just wow love this book. You know, you were talking about queer representation. My lead in this book is Sophie, and she's pansexual, which was really fun for me to explore and write about. That's also an identity that I identify as. And so she, in this book, is a romance author. She's working on her second novel. And so meta, because this is my second novel, too. I was going to say, I feel like that there's something similar there. (laughs) You're like, why does this sound really familiar? Yeah, so she is a romance author who's never been in love before. And she goes viral for saying that love isn't real on TikTok. And so she has to go on a journey to figure out why she can't say those words. So she decides to revisit her past relationships. I don't know if you've ever seen this show Lovesick on Netflix. It's so cute. No. It's about a British guy who has to go to his exes and tell them that he has gonorrhea and they should get tested. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, I want to add it in, to my list. <laughs> it's so cute. It sounds crazy, but it's really cute. And so I based it off of that and Runaway Bride. Those were kind of my comps, but... She has huge trust issues, and so along the way of her journey, she connects with her landlord, who's her brother's best friend. A big romance trope there. But he is in recovery for alcoholism and has a ton of trust issues, too. So they kind of bond over this lack of trust, but it turns out they can trust each other. And ultimately, the book is about finding someone who accepts you fully as you are, flaws and all, and also the journey to accepting yourself. So... It's a funny rom-com, but it also has a lot of heart, and I hope everyone enjoys it as much as I loved writing it. Well, it sounds like there's a lot to enjoy, and congratulations again for all of the great buzz and all those accolades you've already gotten. I'm so excited that when this episode drops, we will be on Pub Day, and hopefully even more people will be telling you how much they love it. Thank you. And it was so good to see you again. Thank you for coming back on the show. I know. Thank you for having me. Anytime. I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.